This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Piki mai kake mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balancer ho. This week, we're finding out about the mega mast fruiting and seeding year that has hit New Zealand's forests this summer. So far, the news that this is an amazing fruiting season for tree species such as rimu and other podocarps has been something to celebrate. The mass rimu fruiting is, of course, why the kākāpō population is having such an impressive baby boom. 72 living chicks and more on the way. But, to mangle a metaphor, this silver cloud has a very dark lining – because when southern beech forest has a mass seeding year, it's both very good and very bad news for a whole range of native birds. The reason it's such a big problem is that the five species of southern beech trees cover a lot of land. They dominate two million hectares of forest in New Zealand, and they are a significant part of a further two million hectares. We're going to find out about the science of predicting a beech mast year and how the Department of Conservation is responding a bit later in the show. But first, we're going for a walk in the forest. A long time ago, 1969 to be exact, scientists began counting the number of hard beech and hinau seeds that fall each year in the Orongaronga Valley and the Remutaka Ranges just east of Wellington. It was one of a number of long-term ecological studies being carried out by the then Department of Scientific and Industrial Research's Animal Ecology Division. Over time, it changed its name to DSIR Ecology Division, then DSIR Land Resources. The scientists kept counting the seeds. When DSIR was disbanded, the Orongaronga Valley Research Station became part of the Crown Research Institute Landcare Research, The seed counting continued. In 2011, the Department of Conservation took over the seed fall monitoring and carried on counting seeds. This data set is now one of the longest-running ecological studies in New Zealand forests. A couple of months ago, I joined DOC staff on an historic trip into the long-term research area to mark half a century since the seed collecting began. With me were ecologist Clayson Howell and technical advisors Karen Vincent and Anne Thompson. 
What is it that Clayton is wrestling with? There was something there a second ago and they've just dismantled it. So what was it? It's probably one of the original seed rain traps um, held together with waratahs in a big um, metal funnel that looks like a giant hubcap. Um, They've been here for a long time and you can imagine that they're getting a bit worn out. So Clayton's just taking out the old waratahs, which are a bit stubborn, so we'll take that rubbish out with us and we'll replace with the new funnel and new waratahs for hopefully another 50 years. So for 50 years they've been measuring the yeah. amount of seed that falls yeah. in this forest. Yeah, cool. So what actually happens, that funnel is presumably a set size. 0.28 Point. square metres. So mm. that was a handy 0.28 square metres <laughs> from Clayson. <laughs> <laughs> the old one that they took out, what's it got in it? It's just full of leaves and everything yeah. that falls from above, yeah, basically. Yeah, full of leaves. So it's like a rain gauge for seeds. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. Now there's a hole in the bottom. What's the purpose of that hole? Is that just to let water out so you don't end up with seed soup? Uh, no, uh, these old ones had a yoghurt pottle. Take it out, drain all the water out, and then we had cotton bags labelled for each trap. Take them back to the office, let them dry, and then send them off to be tested. It's pretty soupy at the moment, isn't it? It's very soupy. That's like six months of soupiness. Soup seeds are really small. They're very they? small. Are we talking one or two seeds, or are we talking tens or hundreds? Oh, depending on the year, but it, it can be hundreds, yes. And sometimes it's zero. So with the seed fall tray now in place, and Karen is just attaching a what, Anne? Well, it's a 40 dunia knee-high black <laughs> stocking, Alison. Oh, lovely. Yes. So did you have to buy a few of those? Yes, we do buy a few. and um, We mm. replace them every time, but they, they make collection very easy. So how often do you come in here and change them? We come in monthly over the summer months, um, January to May, and the henau we do quarterly throughout the year. How many of these seed fall trays do you have? Uh, there's 21 hard beach seed trays and 19 hino. The stockings, full of tiny beach seeds, are sent to the University of Canterbury to be counted. The larger hino seeds are counted on the spot, and Karen and Anne say that on average they'll get 38 seeds in each trap when the trees are fruiting. But back in 1999, during a very big mass seeding year, there were 452 henau seeds in one trap alone. It'll be really interesting to find out how many have fallen once this season's counts are complete. But what happens with all this information about how many seeds are falling from the trees? Clayson Howell is the doc ecologist tasked with crunching all these seed numbers as part of a larger ecological model of New Zealand forests. The model is used to help predict mass mast seeding events that are likely to cause rodent and stoat plagues. So what's the value of this 50-year seed collection in the Orongaronga Valley? Well, one, it's a really long-term data series, so continuing what was done a long time ago, but it's really important to know interannual variations in the food productions in the forest. What kind of quantity of seeds are we talking about in, the, in this forest? Probably something in the order of around about Five or 6,000 seeds per square metre is what we would be expecting this year, or more. Um, in some really big years it can be up to 15,000 seeds per square metres, and in some years it can be zero. And there's a lot of variability between years? There's a, a huge amount of variability between years, yeah. So there, there seems to be um, there's climate triggers um, and probably some resource limitation as well. So it's, it's quite complicated as to why there's a lot of seed produced some years and not others. I'll come back to that in a, in a minute. I just have another question, which is, this is, obviously isn't the only site in New Zealand. So in terms of 
dock across the country. How many sites like this do you have? I think there's about 70 sites across the country and uh, that's just for the, the beach species, so five different beach species. Some sites have multiple species but I think there's about 70 sites um, but this site is one of the ones that has been running the longest. And the beach here is? This is hard beach predominantly here although there is, um, there is some silver beach further up towards the bush line. So all these seeds get gathered up, somebody counts them, which sounds like a very onerous task. What happens with all that information? Uh, So all of that information goes into a big database and uh, one of the things that we've been doing for the last few years is trying to um, use that data to um, explain the seed patterns that have happened in the past in order to predict what's going to happen in the future. And we know that the climate in the two years or more leading up to a seed event makes a difference and so um, based on the climate that has been we can make some pretty confident predictions about how much seed is going to fall about a year in advance of it actually falling on the ground. What's the pattern? What are you looking for? It's slightly different for the different uh, beach species but if you think about the current year as year zero then um, generally speaking a warm summer one year before it and a, a less warm summer one year before that is the main driver but there are also rainfall implications. So you're talking about average temperature in those two summers? We can either use average summer temperature, say January, February, March, or you can use the average daily maximum. And and what we have found is that the maximum temperature is a a better predictor than the average daily temperature. This is what is called the Delta T model? Uh, So the the Delta T model is, uh, Delta just means kind of difference really. So that is about that difference between year minus one and year minus two. And so the, the Delta T model says that when you've got a a summer that is much warmer um, than the previous summer, um, you're likely to get seeding in the next year. There's a bit of disagreement about whether that's actually a, a mechanistic thing or whether it's just a bit of chance that that explains things. But basically, by the end of last summer, you already knew, gosh, we think next year might be a really good fruiting, flowering and therefore seeding year coming up. Absolutely, yes. So we knew this by the end of last summer. When you have a really, really warm summer, there's a good chance that in about 15 months on from that, there would be a a good seeding event. There is some complications that are happening, is that our warm summers are getting more frequent, um, and it's quite unclear as to at what point the the trees can kind of run out of reserves, because um, producing a whole lot of flowers and a whole lot of seeds uses up quite a lot of reserves. So if if the trees are in really productive places, they can kind of keep on responding but in other places they may start to run out of reserves. I'm curious though if the impetus is the relative difference between a slightly cooler summer and a slightly warmer summer. If your slightly cooler summers are getting warmer at the same rate as your slightly warmer summers are getting warmer and the temperature differential is actually just still the same, wouldn't the masting then be the same? Well that's a really good question and and to be honest we're just not sure. One of the difficulties with any kind of modelling is predicting outside of the, the scope of your data and because we just keep on getting very warm years, we're not quite sure. Personally, I don't think that trees have particularly good memories um, and so I don't think they're, they're assessing one year against the next and I think it's more likely to be a, a threshold of temperature that allows them to build up big enough reserves over a, over a summer. But like I say, the, the, the Delta T model does fit quite well to the data. It's a nice, elegant, simple way of explaining some things for you. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that we've been looking at is temperature is not the only thing that trees respond to. Um, There are fertility gradients um, and there's different amounts of rainfall in years. So we were looking at 
the influence of warm wet years versus warm dry years and cool wet years and cool dry years and for some of the beach species the the amount of rainfall um, makes quite a big difference and can improve the fit of the models. I've been hearing from lots of people around the country that actually earlier in the season it was the most incredible flowering year in the beaches. I was down in Southland and Fjordland National Park at the end of November and I have never seen beach flowers like that on the trees so it certainly has been really good for flowering so far. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult thing to quantify, um, you know, flowers on trees, but you can also see, you know, when the wind comes up, these things are wind-pollinated, so you see big clouds of pollen blowing around, um, and, yeah, in some years that certainly does happen. Um, and there have been occasions when flowering um, doesn't turn into seeding, so for whatever reason, the good flowering doesn't necessarily translate into great seeding, but it usually does. Now I've been hearing a lot in the news about um, this being a mega mast year, so is that something that that doc is expecting because of the fact that we've seen so much flowering around? Yeah, I think so, and it's a really difficult thing to quantify because um, there's both a a synchronous um, within forests, so almost all trees producing seeds, and then there's a, a kind of a a connectedness across the the whole landscape. So in some years we um, might see a big flowering and seeding event in the central North Island, but not necessarily across the South Island. And so in some years where you get a really strong temperature signal, you get a really widespread and synchronous event. So those are the kind of the, the years that we are most worried about. And yeah, the, the climate signal for this coming season is, is very strong and very widespread. But really the truth will be in the next couple of months as the seed starts falling, as all this network of seed collecting traps catches that seed and it gets counted, then you'll really know what you're in for. Yeah, I think that's right. And the other thing that I like to remind people of, a lot of seed falling on the ground is not a bad thing. Um, You know, there are lots of native seed-eating or flower-eating invertebrates and uh, birds like parakeets and stuff that rely on these big years in order to have breeding so it's not a bad year it's just an opportunity year to to make a difference and the thing that triggers our management are high tracking rates of rodents. So you get this massive amount of beach seeding and all the birds go hooray and they have lots of babies what else is happening with the introduced predators? If there are a reasonable number of rodents uh, in particular at the, at the start of the seed falling, they can breed very fast, they beat the natives to the food and they raise big clutches of, uh, of their young so the populations can increase very, very rapidly. Uh, and then they eat a certain number of eggs, young birds, mums who refuse to eat, leave nests, that sort of thing. Kei te mai kwe ki tō tātou ao horihori, ki te reo erirangi o Aotearoa. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ. Clayson's model has raised a red flag about a very large beach mass seeding year. Peter Morton coordinates DOC's predator control program, and he's tasked with responding to this information. This one's looking like a doozy, really severe. Last summer, 1718, was exceptionally hot, and the one before that was, was not that flash. So as soon as we got through the 2018 summer, um, we started getting warning bells ringing that, hello, it looks like we've got a mast coming. The next thing that happened is people kept an eye on the trees in the forest, uh, the beech trees in particular, looking for flowering to occur. And sure enough, lots of reports came in of, yes, we're seeing a heck of a lot of flowering going on. Uh, looks like we've got a mast coming. 
the next step and the one that's happening currently is we actually have a guy, Joris Tinnemans is his name, he's leading a team flying around in a helicopter, um, hovering in the canopy of the beech forests and actually leaning out the door of the machine and snipping a few samples off um, trees to then take them away and count the amount of seed that's being produced. So that gives us a definite record or measure of how much seed is out there. So far, everywhere he's looked, he's found extremely high numbers of um, seed being produced. So it really does look like that forecast from more than a year ago is playing out into a widespread and severe mast occurring this year. So how are you going to respond to that? We are running a large-scale predator control program in response. We call that uh, Tiakina Ngamanu, or Battle for Our Birds. It's a mixture or combination of uh, aerial 1080 work and ground control. The method just depends on the site and, and what works best. We're looking to run our largest ever program in response to this mass. We're hoping to treat around a million hectares this year, which is more than we've ever done before. What's the biggest you've done before? The last big mast we had in 2016, we covered about 840,000 hectares that year, which was good, but a bigger area than that is affected by the mast and a larger area is severely impacted by all these extra predators that pop up in the system. Our assessment this year is there's about 1.4 million hectares of vulnerable or highly vulnerable conservation land affected. These are places where... Threatened species populations are still hanging on, you know, ones that are vulnerable to rodents and mustelids. So your uh, rockery and your orange-fronted parakeets, uh, long and short-tailed bats, mohua, yellowhead, as well as other species that are less on the edge but are still going to be badly hit, um, kiwi and fiel and uh, kia. Uh, you know, there's a bunch of critters that are going to get a hard time out of this mast. So not just from the rats and mice, because is there a double pulse? Because following on the rats and mice, you get the stoats. Yeah, exactly right. So stoat populations are actually driven by rodent numbers, particularly rats. Stoats, their main food are rats. So when you get a lot more rats in the system, that uh, inevitably leads to a boom for stoats as well. When rat numbers reduce, those stoats are going to eat something, and they'll switch to the native species that we're trying to protect. Now you've mentioned two figures there. You say you've got funding to do a million hectares, but you've got 1.4 million vulnerable hectares. Those numbers don't add up. Yeah, and it's not just a funding limit. We're aiming to run at pretty much the limits of New Zealand's current predator control capacity in this year coming. Money's one of those constraints, but we actually also run out of skilled people to do this work. There's a pool of contractors out there who are experts in this field, but there's only so many of them. There's only so many um, skilled helicopter pilots able to do this work. We run into constraints also around time. A lot of the impact that we're trying to stop occurs through the spring and summer months when rats and um, stoats in particular are chewing their way through birds' eggs and nestlings. So if we don't control those pests prior to roughly the end of this year, it's, it's too late, we've run out of time. So how do you then prioritise what areas you're going to do? Mm. So if you picture a map of New Zealand and a bunch of dots on it that show the, the last strongholds for some of our unique endemic species, again these are your mohua, your long and short-tailed bats, rock wren, a bunch of animal populations that are really vulnerable 
to rodent and mustelid predation and, and could disappear. The, the extreme is orange-fronted parakeets um, in Arthur's Pass where there's only a few hundred of them left in the wild in the three valleys. They could conceivably go locally extinct if the predators that are going to show up weren't controlled. We have had local extinctions in the past from mast eruptions, haven't we? And I'm thinking more who are in the Eglinton Valley in Fiordland one time. Yes, is the short answer. There was actually a population in the Marlborough Sounds um, that disappeared completely because there was a mast which we didn't respond to because we simply didn't understand what was going on at the time. One of our scientists, a guy called Graham Elliott, who's quite a fan of Mohua, he really learned a lesson out of that and he saw that population disappear entirely and that started us down the path of understanding how big an impact these mast events have. To come back to your question about how we prioritise our sites, we have a good knowledge of where the threatened populations are still hanging on, and then we gauge, well, how vulnerable are they? And that's a mixture of the condition of that particular population. Are the numbers good? Are they widespread? Or or are they declining and, and very limited in their range? And then the other thing we bring into it is how much pressure are they going to have to put up with? You know, how hard a time are they going to get in this coming season? What's their vulnerability, in other words? And we gauge that based on, for example, this mass prediction. It's pretty straightforward this year because basically the pressure is severe everywhere that we're trying to protect. And then it's essentially triage. So we look across all those populations and the limits of how much predator control we can deliver and target it to the populations that are most at risk of severe decline or even local extinction, and that's where we focus our effort. So what are the tools you've got to work with? Basically there's aerial 1080, that's the only toxin that's uh, registered for application from the air, so for large-scale aerial work, aerial 1080 is the tool, and it's it's a really good one. And then a range of tools on the ground, traps and toxins essentially. So that's... Traps that might be self-resetting traps, traps that might be just standard DOC 200 traps, for instance, that people go around regularly and check. Yeah, they're the, the two primary trap types that are out there. Self-resetting traps have the advantage of resetting themselves ready for use without anybody having to reset them, which is really helpful. And then DOC 200s, DOC 150s, they're a good reliable trap as well, although a, a sort of a single shot. There are some other trap types that are in use, but they're relatively minor um, snap traps and, and other designs. We've got a pretty good toolkit for controlling predators. We can do this work effectively. There must be some limitations with traps, so presumably you have existing trap lines and existing bait lines that you can keep running, but if you want to run out more, you've got to have the trap boxes built, you've actually got to get them into the position and there's a lot of work involved in that I would think. Yeah, there's a lot of work involved in this full stop, whatever tool that you're using. We find that ground control is really useful for ongoing annual control at a site and good for maintaining a population but generally speaking our ground control methods get overwhelmed in these mast years. There's so much seed, which is good food for rats and mice, so much seed hitting the ground that the, their populations get so high that they'll just saturate the traps. And this occurs over enormous areas, hundreds of thousands of hectares of remote public land, where the only viable option for getting on top of those predators is aerial 1080. So when do you think you're going to have to start this operation? You've already talked briefly, there's a window of opportunity for you. Yeah, for us the peak time will be from roughly May this year 
through till December. We are driven by the weather, so it's a juggling act between when the birds we're trying to protect most need that predator control to occur, when the weather allows us to do it, as well as we have to sort of work in a prioritised way. So a site that's highly vulnerable will be ahead of the queue, whereas a site that's important but not at risk of, of local extinction, that's, that's further back. This sounds like a massive nightmare of a planning operation. It keeps us on our toes, yeah. We've got a really good team plugged into this, and we've learnt a lot through previous mass response campaigns. So we started in 2014 a guy called Terry Farrell. He led the first one, which was groundbreaking in terms of us understanding what we could do. Previously, DOC had operated at a much smaller scale, a few hundred thousand hectares of predator control each year. We've now lifted our operations um, well beyond that, and like I said, we're reaching for a million hectares um, this time round. How many Battle for the Birds have you run now? This will be the third one. So we've run big campaigns in 2016, 2017, and now 2019. And what results have you seen? That's really encouraging. We're consistently finding that where we do this work and do it well, the bird numbers bounce back. It's not a, a sort of a, an instant fix. So one season doesn't actually make that much difference. But when you continue to manage a population well over a sustained period, 10 or more years, then you start to see the results. We're seeing great outcomes now being achieved. For example, um, there's been 20 years worth of monitoring in the Landsborough Valley down in the west coast of the South Island. We've now seen bird numbers overall double in, in the valley in the time that we've been working with them, and that's through a combination of ground and aerial predator control sustained over time. To give you another example that I'm personally familiar with, I started working uh, with Theo back in the late 90s, and at that time the numbers were very low in the rivers I was working in in the central North Island. We worked closely with Genesis Energy, who is sponsor the FIO program nationally, and made a bunch of changes, including sustained predator control, as well as them adapting the way they operated in terms of their take of water from rivers. The numbers of FIO in the Tongariro um, catchments that we've been monitoring have gone up 900%. 900%, that's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing. A lot of our wildlife, if you take away the predators that eat their young, they'll bounce back and bounce back remarkably well. We've now got the densest FIO population in the world in Tongariro Forest, adjacent to Tongariro National Park, and that's pretty much entirely due to sustained predator control. So although we don't have all the answers and we've got a lot more we can learn and improve on, we do have methods that work well, and this is making a difference in terms of improving the lot of at least some populations that we're managing. So it's about making sure we're keeping the biodiversity that we have, and we're essentially just buying time, aren't we? Yeah, exactly. In the long run, the right goals, predator-free 2050. That's a much smarter strategy where we learn how to control predators once and for all, rather than constantly having to come back. But that's going to take a while. That'll take decades of research and improvement in our current methodologies to get to the point where we could achieve that. I think we can be optimistic because over that period of time and with the, the brain power that's going into this, I think we can pull it off. But over the next couple of decades, we need to make sure we don't lose the things that we're trying to protect. 
And really that's where Te Akinanga Manu or Battle for Our Birds comes in. We're basically holding the line to keep these populations alive uh, and in reasonable health, essentially to hand on to the next generation so that they're still there to work with as they pick up the baton and go forth with the next stage of predator control. Thanks, Peter. That was Peter Morton, who coordinates the Department of Conservation's Tiakina Na Manu, Battle for Our Birds Predator Control Programme. We also heard from Clayson Howell, Karen Vincent and Anne Thompson, who are all from DOC. And that's the show. If you'd like to listen to tonight's story again or browse our ever-expanding universe of past stories, then head to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also find all the episodes of the Elemental and Kākāpō Files podcasts there too. We are also a podcast and you can subscribe, for free of course, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Radio Public. We are on Twitter and Facebook as RNZ Science. Thanks for listening. Until next week, it's goodnight from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marie. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.